Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touch-tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, well, thank you. Um, thank you so much, um, Emma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect Educational Workshop, Metastatic Breast Cancer Treatment Updates. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Stemline Therapeutics, Inc., and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, there are many of you on the call today. You have over 360 participants on this program today. You come from all over the United States, um, from both, both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have a number of international participants from Algeria, Canada, China, Egypt, France, India, Ireland, Ghana, Laos, Sweden, Taiwan, and the Great Britain. So we really have um, quite a few of you on the call. It's a bit of a, it's a global call, actually. And we're delighted to have all of you on the call today. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jennifer Matro. Dr. Matro is Associate Professor of Medicine, Co-Leader, Breast Disease Team, Division of Hematology Oncology, UC San Diego Comprehensive Breast Health Team. Dr. Matro will be addressing an overview of metastatic breast cancer in the context of COVID, seasonal flu and RSV, current standard of care, and new and emerging treatment approaches. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Matro. Thank you, Dr. Messner. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be joining you today on this, this global call uh, about updates in metastatic breast cancer. So I'll start with an overview of metastatic breast cancer. Breast cancer starts in the breast and becomes what we call metastatic when it spreads or recurs to other parts of the body beyond the breast. So that could be the bones, the liver, the lungs, uh, or other distant lymph nodes. And breast cancer is subdivided into uh, a few different subtypes based on markers that the cancers express in the most the most common subtypes that you'll hear talked about are hormone positive or estrogen positive, HER2 positive, triple negative, and now more recently there's a subtype that we're calling HER2 low. So estrogen positive breast cancers express estrogen receptors and they are sensitive to hormone-based medications, which, which I'll review. Uh, HER2 positive breast cancers express a HER2 protein, which is a protein that when it's expressed on the surface of the cancer cells, essentially it signals into the cell to keep dividing. So it can be one of the more aggressive types of breast cancer, but we have very, very effective treatments that target that HER2 protein specifically, and so it's actually become one of the most treatable breast cancers. Triple negative is, uh, the triple comes from the fact that it doesn't express estrogen receptors, progesterone receptors, or HER2. And so that's why we call it triple negative. 
and then HER2 low are breast cancers that are not HER2 positive. They don't quite meet the threshold of being HER2 positive, um, but they have some lower levels of HER2 expression, and that's become relevant in the last uh, couple years because we have some targeted chemotherapy medicines that um, are quite effective for, for patients who have that kind of HER2 low breast cancer. Uh, in the context uh, of COVID and flu and RSV, um, we're, so we sort of have settled back down into more of a steady state compared to a few years ago during the height of the COVID pandemic. Anecdotally, I can say that we, we have seen a slight increase in slightly more advanced breast cancers at the time of diagnosis in women, women who either put off having mammograms during the height of the pandemic or really were not allowed to have mammograms during that time because Many of many institutions were not doing screening while they rerouted resources to deal with the, the surge of, of COVID. So we have women who have maybe more positive lymph nodes than, um, than we were seeing, but in general, access to breast cancer care um, has returned to kind of pre-pandemic levels. Um, the other thing that was relevant around the time of uh, COVID and, and still now with um, vaccines is that the vaccines can cause swelling of the lymph nodes. And so we did have some patients who presented with swollen lymph nodes that we weren't sure were related to cancer, the lymph nodes under the armpit uh, of the arm where they got the vaccine. Uh, and some women even ended up having biopsies of those lymph nodes, um, but ultimately they were found to be negative and just most likely reacting and doing the body's natural work to mount an immune response to the vaccine. Um, the most important thing uh, when dealing with breast cancer, uh, especially metastatic breast cancer, particularly during seasonal flu and RSV, and now see, as we're seeing a rise in COVID cases, is to make sure that you're updated on all your vaccines. Um, everybody should be getting the seasonal flu vaccine if you're, uh, unless you have a specific um, personal contraindication or reason not to. Um, RSV vaccine is available for uh, patients over the age of 65 uh, and anybody who's immunocompromised. And then the updated COVID vaccine, um, we would definitely, uh, I would definitely recommend that you talk to your, your provider about whether uh, it's safe to get these vaccines in general. Um, they, it is. Um, a lot of our treatments are immunosuppressive. So if you were to get any of these infections in the middle of your treatment, then uh, Patients are at higher risk of serious illness from these seasonal viruses. So making sure you're vaccinated, uh, making sure you notify your care team if you do test positive for any of these viruses is important because uh, we do have treatments for some of them. So for COVID, we have Paxlovid. For flu, there's Tamiflu, which um, can potentially lessen the severity and decrease uh, and shorten the, the time when you're really sick. Um, moving on to current standard standards of care. Uh, so that really depends on the subtype of breast cancer. That's why it's so important that at the time of diagnosis, we, we de determine uh, whether somebody has an estrogen positive, a HER2 positive, or a triple negative breast cancer. There are some common themes uh, throughout all, all breast cancer treatment. Um, more, more frequently now, we're doing um, what we call genomic sequencing of tumors or biomarker testing, which is testing that can be done either on a biopsy or a blood sample to identify certain mutations or protein expressions that um, would make you eligible for certain targeted therapies. 
this is especially true in hormone-positive metastatic breast cancer, where we have had several recent, several medications approved specifically for patients whose tumors have certain mutations. And in triple-negative breast cancer, it's important to do to see if patients are eligible for immunotherapy. For hormone-positive breast cancer, the standard, uh, standard of care is generally hormone-blocking medications. Uh, and we sequence those. Uh, so if one medication that you're taking first no longer is controlling the cancer, then we generally will switch to another hormone-based medication. And we really try to delay the need for chemotherapy as long as possible in those patients. And the way that we do that is by uh, more and more these days combining hormone-blocking medicines with what we call targeted therapies. So estrogen-blocking medications, things like aromatase inhibitors or anastrozole, letrozole, eczemestane are pills that block estrogen production and so starve the cancer cells of, of the food that they use to grow. Fulvestrant uh, degrades the estrogen receptors on the uh, breast cancer cells, and that's given as an injection once a month. And tamoxifen uh, is an estrogen receptor blocker. Uh, that's also an, a pill. In general, women who are still having menses who are premenopausal should be should be getting ovarian suppression or uh, shots to, to suppress their periods. And we sequence those medications and we combine them with targeted medicines like CDK4-6 inhibitors. So these are medicines like palbocyclib, ribocyclib, abemocyclib. Uh, those have been uh, shown to be beneficial when combined with aromatase inhibitors or fulvestrant uh, as the either first or second line of treatment for uh, hormone-positive metastatic breast cancer. And what we found when we combine these targeted medicines with the hormone blockers is that we can delay the time, or we can um, extend how long patients respond to those medicines. And so it delays the time to becoming resistant to those medicines. Um, there are other medicines uh, that are approved if you have a specific mutation. So for example, uh, a medicine called alicestrant, which is sort of an oral formulation of fulvestrin, an oral estrogen degrader. Uh, and that's approved just within the last uh, eight or nine months uh, for patients whose tumors have an ESR1 mutation. So that's a mutation that can be acquired over the course of uh, initial treatment for hormone-positive breast cancer. And then another mutation is called a PIK3CA mutation. And there's a medicine called alpolicib that's approved in combination with fulvestrant for patients that, tar that have that mutation. And the, the reason that we uh, are giving these targeted medicines is to overcome endocrine resistance. So eventually, these hormone, even though they're hormone positive, they start to rely on other mechanisms to, for the cancer to grow. And so hormone-based medications uh, eventually uh, become less effective, and uh, incorporating in these targeted therapies, we hope will delay the time of that happening and delay the time to chemotherapy. For triple negative breast cancer, uh, at this point, the backbone is still chemotherapy. We test for uh, what's called a PDL1 or um, uh, to, to decide whether patients are eligible for immunotherapy, such as a medicine called pembrolizumab in combination with chemotherapy. Uh, and then uh, we also have new medicines that are called antibody drug conjugates. 
so antibody drug conjugates are basically a smart way to deliver chemotherapy. It's a chemotherapy payload or a chemotherapy molecule that's linked to a molecule, an antibody that hones in on the cancer cells. And so the antibody hones in on the cancer cells and it delivers the chemotherapy directly uh, to those cancer cells. And so it's a more efficient way to give the chemotherapy. Um, unfortunately, most of the new agents aren't less toxic. They still have chemotherapy side effects. Um, but the data shows that, in general, they are more effective than some of our standard chemotherapy medicines that we've been using for decades. One of these that's approved for triple negative breast cancer is a medicine called sastituzumab govotecan. That's a very effective IV uh, antibody drug conjugate. And triple negative breast cancers can also be what we call HER2 low. So what I mentioned earlier, where they're not HER2 positive, but there's some lower level of HER2 expression. And there is a very effective medicine called trastuzumab deruxtecan, uh, which has really been um, quite effective even in patients who have progressed on um, multiple lines of chemotherapy. So patients with triple negative breast cancer, if they are HER2 low, they uh, will be eligible for this medicine called trastuzumab deruxtecan. How we sequence these antibody drug conjugates is uncertain. We don't know what the best order of them is. It depends sort of on what the chemotherapy molecule is, what the antibody is using to target the cancer cells, um, but that's an area of active investigation. For HER2-positive breast cancers, there have been many new developments over the last few years. As I said at the start, this used to be one of the um, – most difficult to treat breast cancer types of breast cancer, and now it's it's the one that that um, has uh, essentially the most treatment options available. Um, the standard of care for HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer is a taxane chemotherapy in the first line in combination with two HER2 targeted medicines called trastuzumab and pertuzumab, and that's essentially continued as long as it's effective. And then very recently, the, a medicine that I mentioned for HER2-low called trastuzumab deruxtecan was actually first approved for HER2-positive breast cancer, and that's uh, approved for second-line therapy. So once patients have progressed on ataxane and the trastuzumab and pertuzumab, we have a medicine called TDM1, which is also very effective. And then we have other targeted uh, pills, uh, medicines like Tucatinib that can be combined with an oral chemotherapy called capecitabine and the trastuzumab. And what's really advantageous about the Tucatinib medicine is that it's especially effective in patients who have brain metastases, which unfortunately is still more common in HER2-positive breast cancer than some of our other breast cancer subtypes. And then I want to conclude briefly by talking about some new and emerging treatment approaches. There are many novel hormone therapies, endocrine therapies that are in the pipeline, um, all that are trying to make the, the way that we give these medicines easier, so pills instead of injections, and also overcoming endocrine resistance. So once these cancers no longer rely just on the estrogen signaling, um, these new medicines are targeting other ways that the cancers use to work, that the cancers um, grow. One of those medicines is called Capivacertib. It's an inhibitor, uh, what's called an AKT inhibitor, 
uh, and that was granted fast-track review by the FDA earlier this year after data showed that in combination with fulvestrin, it was better than fulvestrin alone. Uh, and so it is expected that that medicine will become, uh, will be approved hopefully in the next few months. Uh, and then other, there are many other oral selective estrogen receptor degraders or SIRDs, so the same family as elephestrin and other agents that function within pathways that lead to endocrine resistance. So we have things like ProTac inhibitors, mitotic inhibitors. Those are all in the pipeline and, and areas of active investigation. And then we have new antibody drug conjugates. Um, so there's a medicine called Datopotamab Derextican, um, Datopotamab or DATO-DXD, um, which was shown to be uh, effective for HER2-negative and HER2-low breast cancer, um, as well as HER2-positive breast cancer. So um, that uh, the drug company announced last month that the HER2-negative and HER2-low study was a positive study, and the results of that um, should hopefully be presented in the next few months. And um, that will hopefully be another option for our patients in the coming year. Um, changing the, the antibody, changing the chemotherapy drug, um, or how well uh, is sort of where the antibody drug conjugates are are going. Um, so I'll stop there and, and um, pass it back to Dr. Messner, and I look forward to taking any questions at the end of the program. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mitra. That was a, just a wonderful presentation. Really, you set the stage for the program today, and just a stellar presentation, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Adrian Wax, and Dr. Wax is Associate Director of Clinical Research, Staff Physician, Breast Medical Oncology, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Instructor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Wax will be addressing the role of clinical trials, biomarkers, diagnostic testing, and technologies, why they are important in informing treatment decisions. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wax. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Messner, for your very kind intro, and Dr. Matro for, like you said, setting the stage so nicely, um, and thanks, everybody, for having me today. Um, and I apologize if you hear me coughing a little bit. Uh, I'll try my best to avoid it. Um, so um, I first wanted to touch uh, broadly on a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which is um, participating in clinical trials. And I think um, participating in clinical trials is a wonderful option to think about um, for any patient with breast cancer at any stage, including a patient with metastatic breast cancer. Um, and, you know, what I always describe to my patients is that all of the therapies we currently use, you know, the whole long list of options that Dr. Matro just summarized so nicely, we know that those are options that are effective for our patients because patients who uh, came in the past participated on clinical trials where we compared option A to option B and, you know, determined which one was better. So all of the treatments that we are excited about and use broadly today, we know that they work um, because of clinical trials done in the past. And so, you know, I think it's always a nice option um, in addition to the standard options that your doctor and care team will present to you. It's always a nice option to also ask about and think about 
you know, are there clinical trials that I could participate in? Um, it's a really nice way to um, build on the different treatments that are available to get access to um, emerging treatments um, and uh, also to, you know, participate in moving breast cancer care forward so that we do even better in 2024 than we're doing in 2023 um, and so on. So um, I think, you know, clinical trial participation is very important and a wonderful thing to talk to your care team about uh, in general. I wanted uh, next to turn to talking about the three different subtypes of breast cancer, as Dr. Matro already laid out. So those are estrogen-driven breast cancer, triple negative breast cancer, and HER2 positive breast cancer. And I'll talk about um, each of those three separately and just highlight some of the biomarkers um, or sort of special um, features or characteristics of each breast cancer that you and your physician um, and other providers should think about as you're determining the best treatment plan. Um, and first, in terms of how we measure these biomarkers and what, you know, technologies do we use. So these are all, as Dr. Mitra said, derived either from a tissue specimen, so either a biopsy that's been done of your cancer or a surgery that's been done to sample or remove a piece of your cancer, and we can test that tissue. Or uh, more and more in the last couple of years, we have the ability to do a simple blood draw, which is obviously much um, easier much of the time than doing a biopsy. And with a simple blood draw, we can also extract some um, DNA from the cancer cells and sort of genetic debris of your cancer cells that might be circulating in your bloodstream. And we can use that DNA from your cancer to profile the cancer and to understand its unique targets and its unique susceptibilities. And we, susceptibilities. And we know that all cancers um, have made, you know, a number of genetic mistakes that led them to become cancer, and more and more we understand which of those mistakes we can identify and pinpoint and then use certain treatments to target in order to improve the way that we treat breast cancer. Um, and so in the first subtype, which is the estrogen receptor positive or hormone receptor positive, estrogen-driven metastatic breast cancer. This is the most common uh, type of metastatic breast cancer. There are two different biomarkers at the moment that we look for as a matter of routine over the course of each patient's treatment. The first one is looking for mutations in a pathway called PI3 kinase. Um, and those can be mutations in a gene called PIK3CA, um, and then in the future, in the coming months, we'll probably also look for mutations in the gene AKT1 uh, and in the gene P10, P-T-E-N. Those are three different genes all in the same pathway called the PI3 kinase pathway that we have some established and some emerging up-and-coming medicines to target that pathway. So if you have an estrogen-driven breast cancer, uh, you always want to be talking to your doctor about whether you have a change in your cancer's PI3 kinase pathway. So that's one um, target that's important. Uh, and then the second target that we always look for recently in estrogen-driven metastatic breast cancer are changes in the estrogen receptor gene itself. 
Uh, and so that gene is called ESR1, uh, which is just the abbreviation for the estrogen receptor gene itself. Um, and so, as Dr. Matro said, just in the recent year or two, we have a new medicine called elacestrant, which is an oral medicine that we know does a particularly good job of targeting estrogen-driven cancers that have ESR1 mutations. So whether you look in the tissue or in the blood, at this point with an estrogen-driven breast cancer, you want to be looking for an ESR1 mutation and look for and understand any changes in the PI3 kinase pathway. Um, and in that PI3 kinase pathway, the medicines that we have available to treat it, as Dr. Matro already um, alluded to somewhat, one is the medicine Alpolisip, or Picray, which is an oral medicine that we already use. The second is a medicine called Capiva Certib, which we think and hope will become available to our patients in the next couple of months to target that same pathway. And then in the next couple of years, I think we'll see even more exciting development of drugs that target um, that PI3 kinase pathway and will also work well for our patients. So that's estrogen-driven breast cancers. Secondly, in metastatic triple negative breast cancer, at this point, the main biomarker uh, that we look for is PDL1. Um, and that's a biomarker that we use to help us understand if it's a cancer that might respond to immunotherapy to drugs like pembrolizumab that Dr. Matro uh, already mentioned. And we do still uh, almost always use a type of chemotherapy as well. And so we combine immunotherapy with chemotherapy if your breast cancer, if your triple negative breast cancer is PDL1 positive. Uh, and then lastly, in the final subset of uh, metastatic breast cancer, which is HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer, um, at this point, actually, beyond looking for that HER2 positivity itself, um, we don't have any other uh, biomarkers that we look for. Um, but if you have a HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer, we know that medicine targeting HER2 will work very well, and Dr. Matro mentioned a number of those. So in the future, there might be other genetic changes that we need to look for in HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer, but at this point, the most important thing is just to know if you have that HER2-positive change itself. And then the two final things I'll mention about biomarkers. So anytime you have a metastatic breast cancer, it's important to do genetic testing, not just of your cancer, but of your whole body to understand if there's a mutation that could have been inherited from your mom or from your dad, like a mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2 that increased your chances of getting the breast cancer. And the reason that's especially important to test for in metastatic breast cancer is that we know if you have a metastatic breast cancer and you do have a mutation in a gene like BRCA1 or BRCA2, there is a certain class of pill medicines called PARP inhibitors that can work very, very well to target those pathways involved with BRCA1 and BRCA2. So we always want to know if you have a change in those genes that you inherited in your family so that we can target, um, so that we can target that appropriately and give you that additional treatment option. And then finally, and as also already alluded to by Dr. Matro, we know more and more in the last couple of years that the marker HER2 while it's most important in HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer, it also matters in some 
ER positive and triple negative metastatic breast cancers that might have a low level of HER2 expression or protein presence. And if that's the case, then there are drugs like trastuzumab, Durextecan, or TDXD that we use in that case. So we do care about HER2, even if it's not a true HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer, because now we have this new category called HER2 low. So that's sort of a quick summary of the biomarkers that we want to look for, and I'm also happy to take any questions about that um, in the Q&A, and I'll pass it on to the next speaker. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wax. Again, that was an outstanding presentation, stellar, and really lots of wonderful information for our participants, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Uh, Kamel Abu Hussein. Dr. Hussein is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School of Rowan University, Adjunct Assistant Professor, Department of Breast Medical Oncology, MD Anderson Cancer Center, Co-Director of the Janet Knowles Breast Cancer Program, Director of Breast Cancer Clinical Trials, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper. And Dr. Hussein will be addressing preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hussein. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner, for inviting me to speak about this very important topic. I think it's really important because it is pertinent to every patient with metastatic breast cancer. Uh, so first of all, I would like to start off by saying that one major difference when we are treating patients with early stage or locally advanced breast cancer that is aiming to eventually cure the disease compared to the palliative treatment that we think of for metastatic breast cancer is the length or the duration of the treatment plan. So in most cases, the treatment for metastatic breast cancer is expected to be ongoing all the time in order to have good control over the disease. And that makes it really important to focus on keeping the side effects to a minimum while we are providing patients with hopefully the most effective treatment that is able to control their disease well. So in other words, it is a time where the quality of life is a main concern. I also would like to say that even though we are going to discuss some of the very common side effects and hopefully provide some information on how to best deal with those symptoms and understanding them better, but the key message here is communicating with the healthcare team that is taking care of you, your oncologist, the oncology nurse, the social worker, and the palliative care team is really very important. Um, now. Some of these symptoms might not be very clear when, the, when they present initially, and there are a lot of areas of overlap that could look similar, like feeling extremely fatigued versus being in pain. And some of those symptoms are going to be temporary only at the start of a new therapy, and then hopefully they will get better over time. And others are going to be longer lasting, and they will need uh, you to alert your care team and discuss those symptoms with them so that they can possibly adjust the doses, maybe give the patient a longer break, uh, or even switch the medications to help minimize the impact of those symptoms on your day-to-day -day life. Uh, I talk to my patients when there is a longer symptom about the importance of keeping a journal when they're at home 
about the effects that happen, what have they done in order to manage those side effects, and whether it's helping or not. So it shows a few of the symptoms because we're not going to be able to go everything because of time constraints, but I'm going to start first with neutropenia. So neutropenia means uh, low white blood cells, especially a subtype called the neutrophils, which are necessary to fight off bacterial infection. So when patients receive chemotherapy or some of the other medicines like the CDK46 inhibitors, for example, they decrease the number of the neutrophils, which could open up the door to developing infections and fevers. This is considered an emergency in the world of oncology. So developing a fever when you are neutropenic is one of the instances where you have to reach out to the provider's office right away so that they can arrange for you to be properly assessed either in the office or you could be sent straight to the hospital for proper evaluation, which could entail looking for a source of an underlying infection and treating that if necessary. And during the education for chemotherapy, I usually talk to my patients about neutropenic precautions and the importance of washing your hands well, avoiding any crowded places, sick people, making sure that you wear a mask um, around the congregation of people, and maintaining your social distancing and eating properly cooked food. Another important symptom is nausea and vomiting. So, of course, nausea and vomiting is one of the most common first symptoms that come to mind when discussing chemotherapy. And usually when we are prescribing a chemotherapy agent that has a high level of inducing nausea, we would give patients anti-nausea medicines preemptively before the chemotherapy is administered in order to lessen the chances of it happening in the first place. But we also send patients uh, with as-needed anti-nausea medicines at home, and usually that's quite sufficient to uh, take care of that symptom. We talk about choosing plain foods, so things like toast, pasta, broth, and cereals, and avoiding heavy, greasy foods. But again, this is one of the things where keeping a diary to discuss it with your doctor really makes a difference. Pain is another big one, and it's one of the commonly encountered symptoms throughout the journey of treating metastatic breast cancer. And this symptom could be related to the cancer itself. So if the breast cancer spreads to a lymph node or spreads to a part of the body, I think one of the most prominent areas that we usually think about is the bones or the spine. It also might be related to a medication side effect. So if you're taking a medicine and this medicine causes mouth sores or mucositis or medicines that can cause something called hand-foot syndrome, uh, medicines that causes neuropathy, all of those can present with pain-like symptoms. So it's an area where I usually have a low threshold to include palliative care, and they're really quite helpful in co-managing my patients. Medicines that we use for Pain uh, are medicines anywhere from Tylenol, Aleve, use of steroids, some prescription medicines like opiates. Antidepressants and anti-seizure medicines can really help. Neurontin is a common one. Um, and also, this is a good place to remind everybody about the role of medical marijuana. I think it's a really good um, option that should be considered, among other things like acupuncture, meditation, and relaxation techniques. So we talked about hand-foot syndrome, and uh, basically some of the medicines, like an oral chemotherapy called Zoloda or capecitabine, can cause some redness, swelling, and tenderness, and sometimes peeling even, in the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet, and that is called hand-foot syndrome. 
Of course, it's a range like anything else. It might be just mild redness, and sometimes it can reach up to a very painful state that might make, make it very difficult for you to use your hands or be able to walk properly. Uh, relaying that to your doctor right away is really important. They can lower the doses. They can switch up the schedule of treatment, uh, and they can advise the use of some uh, topical creams and now we know that the topical Voltaren gel is really quite helpful in alleviating that symptom. The mucositis, which is um, normally referring to inflammation of the inner lining of the mouth, where patients could even develop ulcers on their lips, the inner cheek area, the gums, and even in the back of the throat, could be um, quite impactful in your ability to eat or drink properly. And the best way uh, to take care of this symptom is uh, a mouth rinse uh, with a mixture of water and uh, salt or baking soda, and also drinking plenty of fluids. The use of ice is really helpful, and sometimes we prescribe some um, additional mouthwash. Uh, a common one is the magic mouthwash. Uh, chemo brain is another very important one that a lot of our patients really complain about. So what is chemo brain? This is a term that is usually um, describing this mental fogginess that patients sometimes experience during or after their chemotherapy treatment. And this could make it hard to concentrate or remember things. Um, of course, it happens to varying degrees from one patient to another, but sometimes it could be quite frustrating. I have some of my patients tell me they have trouble remembering certain words, directions, uh, phone numbers. They always have difficulty in multitasking. And this is a multifactorial symptom. This could be um, related to um, the inability to sleep properly, being constantly fatigued, feeling anxious, depressed, or because of uncertainty of the future about how well controlled the disease will be, chronic stress, poor nutrition, lack of proper exercise, and being under the effect of pain or even pain medicines themselves. I think it's a really important one, and the best and the most important thing is to discuss it more with your provider to understand the major contributing factor. So, for example, if there's underlying stress or depression, getting professional help to address that could also be helpful in clarifying the potential uh, ways that we can help it. Um, I talk to my patients about organizing their space and try to focus on one task at a time, so stop multitasking. And sometimes if this symptom is very intrusive, uh, they might benefit from a referral to a neuropsychologist. Um, there are even medications that can help with that, like ProVisual or Modafinil. Neuropathy is another really famous uh, side effect to chemotherapy. So chemotherapy-induced neuropathy refers to symptoms of tingling and numbness and sometimes pain that happens most commonly in the tips of the fingers and toes while patients are receiving chemotherapy. Uh, it could be a slight annoying sensation that comes and goes, but it could also impact your ability to use your fingers to button your shirt or uh, walk properly. Uh, there is a famous um, group of chemotherapy agents which are called taxines that are commonly used in treatment of breast cancer that are notorious for causing that. Um, there are medicines that can be prescribed 
like gabapentin or Lyrica, they're steroids, medical marijuana, and opiates. Uh, sometimes a referral to physical medicine could help, but I would say that discussing it right away with your doctor and monitoring the level of neuropathy is probably best mitigated with adjusting the doses of medicines and possibly taking breaks. Now, because uh, I, I would like to respect the time uh, constraints, I'm going to try to stop here. But of course, there are other side effects. So my colleagues mentioned immune-related uh, problems for the use of immuno-oncology drugs, uh, the antibody drug conjugates. Those have made a big difference in the way that we treat the medicine, uh, the, the disease, a lot of success, but they also opened up the door for some rare side effects like interstitial lung disease, um, and also the CDK4-6 inhibitors with a lot of neutropenia and diarrhea. Um, at this point, I'm going to stop here, and I'm going to go back to my clinic, and my colleagues will uh, be more than happy to take your questions. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Hussein. That was a wonderful presentation, uh, excellent, very comprehensive, um, certainly giving people a very, very good idea, an excellent idea of how to manage some of their side effects and work with their healthcare team on, on all of this. So thank you. And um, uh, so thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Samantha Fortune. Ms. Fortune is an oncology social worker, and she's our Women's Cancers Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. And she will be addressing Cancer Care's free programs and services and how to access our Hopeline and our website. It's my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Fortune. Thank you, Dr. Messner. As mentioned, my name is Sam, and I am the Women's Cancer Program Coordinator as well as an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional supportive services and information to people to help them manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, counseling, support groups, education workshops like this today, publications, and limited financial assistance. In my role at Cancer Care, I provide supportive services to individuals and their families impacted by a cancer diagnosis, as well as develop programs and initiatives for our women's cancer department. Individuals diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer may choose to supplement existing social networks by either joining a support group or engaging in counseling. Please note that many hospitals, treatment centers, and nonprofit organizations offer supportive services. Being a member in a support group in particular can offer the opportunity to speak with others who are going through similar experiences as you are, obtain information, and provide support. Currently, Cancer Care offers specific metastatic breast cancer support groups, both online and via Zoom. The metastatic breast cancer online support group aims to reduce feelings of loneliness and anxiety, explore new ways of coping, increase feelings of hope and empowerment, provide practical information about the treatment and resources, and address ways to communicate with one treatment team or, and as well as your loved ones. Our online support groups take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by professional oncology social workers who can help offer support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and group members must register to join. You can register for an online support group through cancercare.org by selecting our services, then support groups. After cleaning the registration process on our website, members can participate by posting on the support group 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Individuals also may be experiencing practical and financial concerns throughout one's treatment. Please know that if you're encountering such financial hardship, 
There are organizations that may be able to help you. Cancer Care um, offers a resource navigation service, which is a short-term strength-based approach service to patients and caregivers affected by cancer nationally. A trained specialist will work with the patient in connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. If you're interested in learning more about the supportive services we offer at Cancer Care, I encourage you to call our Hope Line at 800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. At Cancer Care, our oncology social workers are trained in how a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis impacts an individual, as well as their loved ones. We are here to offer you support throughout this experience, and we look forward to hearing from you. It has been such a pleasure being part of this program today. Thank you for your attention, and now I'm going to turn the program back to Dr. Lesser. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Fortune, for getting having the chance to put in so much information into such a brief period of time. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A, questions for our panel of experts, and I'm going to ask Emma to explain to you how to queue up the questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And the question for Dr. Natro, should patients obtain COVID and flu shots during treatment? Um, so that, I would discuss that with your care team. Uh, it depends on the degree of immunosuppression that patients are experiencing during their treatment. Um, generally, we do think that they're safe to give. These are inactivated vaccines. You can't get the flu or get COVID from the vaccines, but there is uh, the potential that if you're constantly immunosuppressed that you may not mount um, a great immune response to the vaccine. So I would talk to your care team about the optimal timing of when you should get them. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Wax. Please comment on the use of genosinob for CD4-6 resistance. Comment on its renal toxicity, also on dose and interval for long-time MBC patients. Thanks, Dr. Mester. I'm sorry, the agent, the specific agent comment on the use of denosumab, is that what you said? Denosumab, yes. Denosumab. D-N-O-S-U-M-A-B. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, so denosumab, um, I would put in the same category as another medicine that we commonly use called zoledronic acid or zomeda, whereas denosumab we often call prolia um, or exgeva. Um and those are medicines that are used in the treatment of metastatic breast cancer when the breast cancer has traveled to bones. And um, we, so it's not about, you know, the person who asked the question was asking about using this medicine specifically after a CDK4-6 inhibitor, but I just want to be clear, you could use it after a CDK4-6 inhibitor, but how you determine whether to use a bone-strengthening medicine like denosumab or zoledronic acid relates to whether breast cancer has traveled to bones. It doesn't relate to what treatment the breast cancer has seen in the past or is going to see in the future. But if your breast cancer has traveled to your bones, then um, we absolutely want to administer an agent to protect the bones. And we know that if we administer something like denosumab or zoledronic acid, then that can protect the bone from future fractures. It can reduce the likelihood that you develop pain because of breast cancer in a bone. 
when it can reduce the likelihood that you need to get radiation to treat breast cancer in the bone. So agents like denosumab or zoledronic acid are very important for treating breast cancer that's traveled to bone. When you have any subtype of breast cancer and are on any treatment alongside it, and those medicines, which are bone-strengthening medicines um, and bone-protecting medicines, are used alongside whatever other treatment it is that you're on. So if you're on a CDK4-6 inhibitor then and you have breast cancer in your bones, then you can get denosumab or zoledronic acid at the same time. They go in parallel alongside each other. Excellent. Thank you so much. Another question um, for Dr. Metro. Do you order a periodic circulating tumor cell blood test such as Foundation Health to track treatment response and or progression? So at this time, so um, circulating tumor DNA, as Dr. Wax mentioned, is one of the ways that we can get cancer tissue and do that biomarker testing. At this point, I don't do that kind of testing to determine response to treatment. I would say it's still kind of in the early experimental phases, uh, and there's some mixed results at this point if uh, regarding whether you, if you follow, say, circulating tumor cells or the, the amount of cancer that you can measure in a blood test if you make a treatment change just based on that versus waiting for the cancer to grow on a CAT scan, for example, that 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 provides a significant benefit. So if it's built in as part of a clinical trial, I would definitely support doing it uh, at this point because it's not typically a, a considered standard of care. I don't follow that. Um, what I do follow are what we call sometimes tumor markers. So these are things like CA15-3 or CA2729 that some breast cancers can secrete in the bloodstream and can be used as a, as a tool in determining how effective a medicine is not the only um, way to assess that. So I use it alongside assessing symptoms and scans, um, and I never make treatment decisions based on the results of that blood test. I, oh, I really only use them to help me determine maybe how often to do scans um, because things unrelated to cancer growth or regression can cause those numbers to go up or down. So they're not specific to breast cancer response, but they can be used um, as one of many tools that we have to help determine whether a medicine is effective. Excellent. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Wax. Are pathologists testing all newly diagnosed breast cancer tissue for HER2 low or only metastatic breast cancer? Yeah, that's a great question, um, and the answer is that um, any, really pretty much any breast cancer tissue, whether it's derived from a biopsy or derived from a surgery, um, and uh, whether the patient has a stage one, two, three, or four breast cancer is going to be tested for HER2, um, and so it really is being tested at all at all stages and sort of phases of breast cancer treatment. Excellent, thank you. Um, Dr. Nature, if one has um, if one has bone marrow sample with no signs of cancer and two weeks later um, a diagnosis of MBC, would there be need to get biopsy of vertebrae spot from PET scan? Um, I think generally what what this is talking about is if you have 
if you've been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer on imaging, but maybe a biopsy is negative. Um, so we can definitely see that where we do a biopsy of a spot that looks abnormal on a scan and we, and it turns out that they don't isolate cancer cells from that. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not cancer. It just means generally that, um, maybe the needle missed it or it's not, you know, the, the entire area that's abnormal is not all cancer. And so it's not, it doesn't mean that it's not cancer. It just means that we didn't get cancer in the sample. Um, and so if the imaging is suspicious enough, um, if it's the first recurrence, so if it's the first diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer, we generally really do want to get tissue because we want to confirm if you had breast cancer in the past that it's the same cancer and that it hasn't changed in any way, like the markers, the receptors are the same. So if you had an estrogen-positive cancer initially, that it's still estrogen-positive. If it was HER2-positive before, that it's still HER2-positive because that guides treatment. Um, so if you've had a negative biopsy, generally we would try to find an additional site that's easily accessible. Um, Otherwise, if, if, if there's, if the imaging is suspicious enough, sometimes we do treat without a biopsy, although that's really not desirable. Um, and then there are, um, also of note certain types of breast cancer or, or certain findings on imaging that might look like breast cancer or might look like a cancer occurrence, but they may have other explanations. And so, um, we wouldn't want to necessarily start treatment for metastatic breast cancer if if there's other possible reasons. So um, something definitely that would, that if you're dealing with this, I would maybe get a second opinion, go to an academic medical center, um, maybe ask about other ways of imaging that could potentially identify either other sites or better characterize the site that was um, biopsied but found to be negative. Excellent, thank you. And Dr. Wax, since MBC is a given, should I be less concerned with exposure to respiratory diseases in light of my desire of increased quality of life over quantity and seek out visits from my kids, friends, and travel? Yeah, I think that's a really, a really good and a really important question. And what the question asker is saying and acknowledging is that, you know, unfortunately, especially now in this COVID era, we all have to think extra hard about risks of, you know, large group gatherings indoors and things like that and hanging out with your grandchildren when your grandchildren have cold symptoms and, and that sort of thing, things that really didn't weren't so high on the radar before in terms of riskiness. Um, and, you know, I talk to my patients all the time about, um, when they're living with a disease like metastatic breast cancer, how to balance the fact that often, not always, but often you, your immune system is a little bit lower because of the treatments that you're receiving. Um, again, how to balance that against the fact that, you know, time with family and friends and, you know, hobbies, activities that you enjoy is, is all the more important. Um, and, you know, so what should you do if you're on an immunosuppressive treatment, but a friend invites you to a concert, indoor concert of your favorite band? Or what should you do if you're supposed to, again, babysit your grandchildren on Friday, but they have cold symptoms or something like that? And 
Um, I think those are really hard questions, and I don't have a perfect answer to how to strike that balance of protecting yourself, um, but also, you know, engaging fully in the activities that are really important to you and interacting with the people who are really important to you. Um, I don't have a perfect one-size-fits-all answer, so I think it's something to keep a very open discussion about with your particular doctor and treating team about, okay, what's my immune system and my treatment status at the current moment, and, you know, what are the activities that are important to me that I want to do. But, you know, I think in general now, thankfully, we have, you know, very good um, immunity against COVID, at least in the term, in terms of vaccine protection. You know, hopefully um, many people have gotten vaccines against COVID to give them protection. And if you do get um, something like COVID or flu, as Dr. Matro mentioned before, even if you get um, diagnosed with that, we do have very good medicines like Paxlovid and Tamiflu to treat those infections. So our concern about getting severely, severely sick from something like a viral illness, thankfully, you know, isn't as high now as it was back in 2020 when we were in very scary uncharted territory. So I tend to think in general that you can be thoughtful, again, about your particular situation and activities, but I think it's important to spend time with the people who are important to you and to do the activities that are meaningful to you. Um, You can certainly wear a mask. Uh, which we know offers a good amount of protection, though not complete protection. Um, but I, I think it's important to engage in those activities. Excellent. And um, so I, some of you have asked about whether this will be available after the call itself, and it, it will be um, available as a podcast after the program um, in a couple of days. Um, it will be up as a podcast with closed caption as well. Um, and I'm just going to ask each of our speakers to provide just a takeaway from today's call. So I'm going to start with Dr. Matro, um, and then um, Dr. Wax, and then Ms. Fortune. So Dr. Matro, do you want to go first? This is a takeaway for people. Sure. I think um, the main takeaway is that metastatic breast cancer, of course, is scary, but we have a lot of really effective treatments for all of the subtypes and the state of our clinical trials and investigations is really robust so that new new drugs are coming down the pike, you know, very consistently. Um, so there's a lot of reason to be optimistic uh, and hopeful that um, we have really good and effective treatments for all subtypes of breast cancer. Excellent. And um, thank you. And uh, Dr. Wax? Um, thank you so much, Dr. Messner. I I was going to say, um, you know, I think if there's one buzzword that's particularly exciting in metastatic breast cancer these days, it's antibody drug conjugates, um, which are the types of medicines that Dr. Matro talked about where you have an antibody targeting a certain protein that's attached to a chemotherapy and so it's sort of a smart delivery system, a targeted delivery system for a chemotherapy agent. And I think antibody drug conjugates can come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, all sorts of different targets, all sorts of different chemo molecules can be attached on there. Um, and that's a really important and evolving class of treatments for metastatic breast cancer and a good one really with any subtype of breast cancer um, to, ask your, to ask your provider about. Excellent. And um, Ms. Fortune? 
Um, I would say that with um, metastatic breast cancer, it can be very overwhelming, and it can also seem like a very lonely experience. But I want to stress that you're not alone in this situation. There's a lot of programs and organizations that focus solely on metastatic breast cancer, um, and that support groups, counseling, things of that nature. So don't be afraid to ask for that help and utilize those services when you need. Thank you. Excellent. Well, I have to say this has been an outstanding program. I actually want to thank all of our wonderful speakers on today's program. It's just, and I want to thank all of our wonderful participants who've asked such great questions. And we had so many questions, we couldn't get to all your questions. So I do want to comment on that as well. Um, nevertheless, um, I just want to thank everybody. It was a wonderful, we've done uh, a program on this topic before, but I have to say the questions were outstanding and our speakers were very outstanding as well. So it's a really great, great participation by all. So I do want to comment because we, for those of you who had an opportunity to ask a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask or are thinking of a question, I would recommend that you go back to your treating healthcare team and ask them the question because you've learned something from today's program and we hope you'll take that information back to your treating healthcare team. They know everything about you because they have your chart in front of them, their records, everything about you, and they'll be able to answer the question in the best possible way. And as Ms. Fortune said, we don't want any one of you to feel when you leave the program today you're alone. We want you to now know that you're part of a community of support and that you can access uh, services from Cancer Care and from many other organizations. Um, some organizations are available 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Others are available during business hours, Eastern Time or West Coast Time, but nevertheless, you are not alone. Plus, you have your healthcare team, and I would recommend that all of you ask your healthcare team, like in terms of evenings, weekends, and holidays, who's available, who's covering, so you actually always know how to reach um, your treating healthcare team. That's important because, again, they know you the very best and are in the best position to answer your questions. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And we have many more breast cancer programs coming up, so you'll be getting information about that as well. And thank you all for your participation, and have a great day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.